This is Leviticus 24, 1 through 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever before your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the time that we have had in Leviticus. We thank you for the new things that your spirit is showing us, things that we have not paid attention to before in our previous readings of Leviticus. Uh, We pray that your spirit would energize your word powerfully tonight and drum it into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Previously on Leviticus. At the end of Exodus, God moved into Israel's neighborhood and his glory filled the tabernacle so that even Moses could not enter. And the dwelling place of God was not yet a tent of meeting with God's people. So God gave Israel the offering system by which they could draw near to him. And Aaron and his sons were ordained as priests. And at the end of their time of ordination, they gave offerings. And the glory of the Lord appeared again and consumed the offerings on the altar with fire. And the people shouted with joy. But Nadab and Abihu disregarded God's instructions And God consumed them with fire as well. And very likely that same day, God gave Moses and Aaron the ritual for the Day of Atonement. The one day out of the year that Aaron could go into the most holy place to make atonement for the sins and the uncleannesses of Israel that was polluting the temple. And we didn't talk about this last week, but I think there's good reason to believe that Aaron carried out everything for the Day of Atonement on the same day that God gave the instructions for it. And the reason is that Nadab and Abihu's corpses defiled the tabernacle, defiled the sanctuary. And what it turns out when you read Leviticus that nothing is more unclean than a corpse. Nothing is more unclean than a dead body. And you become unclean if you touch a dead body. And the priests were not allowed to touch a dead body unless it was a very close relative, if it was a mother or a father or a sibling, But the high priest couldn't touch a corpse under any circumstances, not even his own parents. And so the tabernacle had to be cleansed right away. So that's what's happened so far in Leviticus. We were through the first 16 chapters last week. And this week, I want to get a little bit deeper into some of last week's text and then touch on a few things toward the end of the book of Leviticus. 
So as I mentioned last week, after Nadab and Abihu die in chapter 10, God speaks directly to Aaron for the only time in the whole book of Leviticus. 37 times it says, and God spoke. Only once it says that God spoke to Aaron directly. And God says this, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. And what I want to do this week that I couldn't get into last week is I want to clarify what these terms actually mean. So let's start with holy. God is holy. He's the creator of heaven and earth. God is not like us. You may remember a song from the mid-90s called One of Us where Joan Osborne sang, What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus? Well, he's not. God is not like us. God is holy. He is other. And something that belongs to God is holy. Something that is holy belongs to God. It's taken up into God's sacred space. And so when something or someone becomes holy, they belong to God and they must remain exclusively with God. When something becomes holy, it stops having a life of its own may have had a life of its own before, but it stops having a life of its own. And its life is now set apart for God. So that's holy. Common is the next one. What is common still belongs to God in the sense that God made it. It has its existence because of God. But it's not exclusively set apart for God. God doesn't take ownership of it specifically. And so there are bowls in the tabernacle for drink offerings... But an Israelite probably also had bowls in his house, bowls that he used for his own uses. But the bowls in the tabernacle can't be used in the Israelite's house. Those bowls are holy. They're set apart. They can't just be used for regular use in an Israelite's house. And likewise, an Israelite's bowls can't be used in the tabernacle because the bowls in the tabernacle are holy and the Israelite's bowls are common. Now, anything that's common breaks down into two categories, clean and unclean. So first, clean. Something that is clean can be in God's presence. If something is clean, it can appear before God and be in his presence. And because God made a covenant with his people, he declared them clean when he made that covenant with them. They can assemble in his presence because he has made them clean. Now, what's more is that something that's clean can become holy if God chooses to set it apart. So the bowl that's in the Israelites' house, if God chooses to set it apart, it can become holy because it's clean. If it doesn't have leprosy on it or if the corpse of a dead animal hasn't touched it and it's not unclean and it's clean, then it can be used, it can be set apart for God's use. And in Leviticus 8 and 9, we read about how God takes Aaron and his sons, who are common people, and makes them holy as his priests. He sets them apart. So clean things can become holy. And God takes Israel from unclean to clean, and then purposes to make all of Israel holy. That's God's intention, is to make Israel holy. Not just clean, but to make Israel holy. A light to the unclean nations who will see the light and come to be cleansed and to be made holy themselves. And so God says to Israel in Exodus 19, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so when someone or something is sanctified in in Leviticus, and the word sanctified just means 
to make holy. It comes from the cleansing of blood, and their status changes from clean to holy. Does that make sense? And then finally, unclean. Something that is unclean cannot be in God's presence. It cannot. Someone who is unclean can't draw near to God. That's why they have to be outside the camp and they can't come into the assembly. They need to stay away from God. They need to stay away from God's holiness. And this is why God says in Leviticus 7 that that somebody who is unclean, who touches an unclean thing, and then takes from the communion offering, they have to be cut off from their people because they're unclean and they have partaken of holy food and they need to be cut off from the people. So the unclean... And the holy must never mix together. And unfortunately, something that is holy can be defiled, and it can become common, and it can even be made unclean. And so God calls Israel to be a holy nation, but later God has to spew Israel out of the land because of its persistent sin and its uncleanness. And so I have two applications tonight, and the first one that I want to make is this. We aren't just called to be clean, we are called to be holy. We aren't just called to be clean, we are called to be holy. And there's a clear difference between being clean and being holy. And it's relevant to our lives. We might think that we're holy because we refrain from certain sins. You might have a list in your mind of what the baddies are, you know, the the real biggies. Well, I don't do that, and so I'm holy. But as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's real possible to refrain from sin and still keep God at an arm's length and to not be set apart for God. Holiness is a matter of belonging to God. You are not your own. I am not my own. We are not our own. Refraining from sin is good. It means that we're clean. But are we holy? We're not just meant to be clean. We're meant to be holy. And you might have come to Jesus in your life because you were grieved about your sin and you were repentant over your sin. And you might have come to Jesus because your life wasn't working well and you wanted to learn from Jesus how to really live. Or you might have come to Jesus because it's what your family did and it's just all that you know. However it happened, when you put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you were cleansed through the waters of baptism, you became holy. God set you apart as holy. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are living stones in the temple of God, where God himself has chosen to dwell. And Peter says that we're a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. We're not offering goats and bulls. We're not offering blood, but sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and worship and honor and blessing. And the point is that we're a part of God's house and we're a holy priesthood. We have been set apart. We are not our own. God wants to make us holy. And that means being cleansed from sin and yielding ourselves as an ascension offering through death to self. Does that make sense? Is that good? And death to self is putting what God wants and what God wills ahead of what we want and what we will. What you want and what you will may be good and it may be legitimate, 
But if God wants and wills something else, it means putting what you want and will to the side. It means dying to that. And you do it, even though it feels like death, because it's what God wants. George Mueller was an evangelist who ran an orphanage that served over 10,000 children during his lifetime. And he started 117 schools that served over 120,000 students. And that's a lot of work. And yet his friends said that the 23rd Psalm was etched in George Mueller's face. The Lord was his shepherd every single day. The 23rd Psalm was etched in his face. So how does that happen? How does somebody who is so prolific in their works have the 23rd Psalm etched on their face? Well, George Mueller himself says, There was a day when I died. Died to George Mueller. His opinions, preferences, tastes, and will died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. George Mueller's greatest desire was to walk with God, and that meant that George Mueller had to die to everything except to God. We are very unhappy when we want to have something And yet we also don't want to outright defy God. We want to have something. God hasn't in his wisdom given it to us. And yet we don't want to outright defy God and grasp after it ourselves. We're very unhappy when we're split between those two things. Think of a time or situation in your life when you really wanted something. And you knew that God in his wisdom hadn't given it to you. And as long as you live between those two desires, I bet you were quite miserable. Because that does make us miserable. And the only way out is to die to self. And as Paul says in Romans 12, to be a living sacrifice, to be a perpetual ascension offering to the Father. So being clean is good. As Chad has said before, any reason not to sin is a good reason. Being clean is good, but being holy is what we were made for. Being holy is what we're made for. Moving on. So we've talked about how sin and uncleanness pollutes the tabernacle. But the opposite is also true. God's presence dwells in the most holy place and pushes out of the tabernacle and makes the people holy. God's presence in the midst of Israel makes them holy. God is sanctifying the people. He set them apart to be a holy nation, but the people also need to be made holy. They need to have holiness in them from the inside and expressing itself outward. And God's presence sanctifies the people, makes them holy. So Leviticus 22, 32 and 33, God says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. And in Leviticus 19, 2, God says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. God's purpose and activity in the world is to cleanse and to make holy. That's his purpose for us, is to cleanse us and to make us holy. Well, the purpose of Satan in the world is to pollute and to desecrate and to tear down and to destroy. God's ways are the path of life, while the ways of Satan lead to death. Which should remind us of John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
In chapters 23 through 25 of Leviticus, we get God's plan of how he is going to make his people holy and what they need to stay away from so that they're not unclean and polluted with sin. And the plan that God gives is largely centered on Israel's gatherings for worship and for celebration. And these are in chapters 23 through 25. And so in chapter 23, God gives seven occasions for gathering in his presence. And as I think about the times and seasons that God set for Israel, I was reminded earlier looking at the, the banners that Anchor has up. These are new bankers, or banners because on Sunday is Pentecost. And so they have the, the flame and they have the dove, the Holy Spirit, descending. So Sunday is Pentecost, and, and there are times in which Israel gathers in the presence of God, and it all starts with the Sabbath. And in Exodus 31, 13, God says, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I, the Lord, make you holy, Sabbath by Sabbath. God's presence in the tabernacle is the source of their being made holy. And Sabbath by Sabbath, they gather into his sanctifying presence. And this is given a symbolic picture in the text that I read in Leviticus 24, 1 through 9. So evening and morning, Aaron tends to the lamps in the holy place. Every Sabbath day, he takes 12 loaves, which represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sets them in two piles six in each pile, on the table in front of the lampstand. And so every Sabbath day, the bread is renewed, and the light from the lampstand shines on the bread. And it's a wonderful symbol of God shining his face upon the people of Israel, Sabbath by Sabbath. They gather in his presence, and God's face shines upon them, Sabbath by Sabbath. And it reminds me of the benediction that God gives in Numbers chapter 6, where God says, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I shall bless them. Sabbath by Sabbath, Israel gathers in God's presence, and his face shines upon them. And God is making Israel a holy people through their gathered worship together. And I think that should be instructive for us as a church. And that's application number two for tonight. And that's that God is making us holy through our gatherings together. God is making us holy through our gatherings together. We have been set apart as holy. We have the status as holy, but we are also being made holy inside and out. So that is our fundamental character and who we are. There's a lot in Leviticus that does not apply to us as a church. There's a lot as you read Leviticus that no longer applies. We do not have to do these things. We do not have to abide by certain rules. You can eat a mole rat or a lizard if you really want to. I don't recommend it. But you can. doesn't make you unclean. If you have psoriasis or another skin disease, you can still come to church. If you have a baby, you can come to church the very next Friday. But if you were an Israelite woman and you just had a baby, you wouldn't have been able to. If it was a son, you have to sit out for 40 days. If it was a daughter, you sit out for 80 days. 
So a lot of Leviticus doesn't apply, not directly to us. But that doesn't mean that we can't gain wisdom from the instructions that God gave the people. What was God's intent? What was God trying to instill in the people when he gave these instructions? And what wisdom can we get from it? Because there's much wisdom to be had. And in particular, I want us to think about our gatherings together. As I mentioned earlier tonight, the purification offerings come first because sin has to be dealt with first. We don't always have a time of confession up front, but we do set aside time at the beginning to prepare ourselves to meet with the holy God. The animal was cut into pieces, and we are cut up by the word of God, as it says in Hebrews 4. The word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. We're cut up by it through the public reading of Scripture and through the word that's preached. And as the animal was turned to smoke through fire, we have the Spirit of God burning within us so that we ascend through song and enthrone God on our praises. And as the Israelites enjoyed a meal through the communion offering or the peace offering, we gather at the Lord's table together to dine with him and with each other. And through it all, we're being made holy. And we push that out to the world. We take that holiness that set-apartness, that belonging to God, our life not our own, and we take that out into the world. And so what do we have? We have an assembly of the people. We have the word of the covenant that's shared. We have a meal, and we're sent forth to live the covenant. It's the same four things that Dr. Peters talked about, us, talked about with us last summer about biblical worship and what biblical worship is. And so a lot's changed since the time of Leviticus and the instructions that God gave his people But he is making us holy in the same way that he was making the Israelites holy, to be set apart and to push that out and to be a light to the world. Isn't that good? Our gatherings are vitally important. I won't be here next Friday. I'm going to be visiting my parents in Florida. And it's a good thing, and I'm glad to visit them. So I'll be out of town. And I can still hear Chad's sermon through the podcast, and I'm grateful for that. But I won't be able to sing with you. I won't be able to come to the table with you, and I won't be able to fellowship with you. And so I will miss something that can't be replaced because I won't be here next week. And every time that we aren't here, we do miss something that can't be replaced. And I'm not saying that you can't ever miss church. I'm not being legalistic or laying down a rule. But we should think to ourselves, what will I miss by not being here? What will I miss if I don't gather with the body? And the same thing is true for your home group. We all know what it's like to face a commitment moment at around 6.30 on Tuesday or Wednesday, depending when your home group meets. It's 6.30 and something has come up and it would be easier to stay home. And nobody would question it if you said that you had to stay home because of X or Y or Z. But in that moment, I would hope that your question isn't, is my reason for not coming good enough? Does it pass muster? But rather, what will I miss if I don't show up? What will I miss if I don't come to home group? And what will I not be able to give to the people who are there? God is making us holy through our gatherings. His light shines perpetually on his people. And so as we close out Leviticus and reflect upon how God has set us apart and is making us holy, the verse that's been on my mind and heart a lot this week is a verse that uh, in a text thread that our, the men in our home group have, Paul Ponder put out on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. And it's Hebrews 10, 
24 to 25. And it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I remember a long time ago uh, hearing that verse and hearing Billy Henderson say that to stir up really means to irritate or to provoke people to good deeds, to love and to good works. And we might know what it's like to be on the receiving end of somebody irritating or provoking us to love and good works. And we might not like it. We might not like what it feels like for people to, you know, to, to really trying to call us up. Uh, we might want to, to stay in our reasons for why we're where we're at. We might not like it. And if that's the case, this text probably comes off as heavy when we hear it. But I want to suggest that there is a playful spirit behind this text. There's a playful spirit behind Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And I think the writer has a smile in the corner of his mouth as he writes this. And so if, if my, my good friend and, and co-leader, Adam Whitbeck, cheerfully challenges me to something beyond my natural inclinations, and it will be a cheerful challenge because Adam doesn't do it any other way. It's a cheerful challenge. I can either wilt in frustration and feel like he doesn't understand my life and that he should give me a pass, or I can respond with openness and with curiosity and recognize that Adam is giving his challenge from a place of strength and from maturity. And that I need to adapt to that. I need to, I need to call myself up to that rather than insist that he come down to my level and into my weakness. Does that make sense? Because the spirit of Christ is always strong and mature. The spirit of Christ is always strong and mature. And the spirit leads us to adapt upward rather than to spiral downward. Ours is an upward life. Hallelujah. We are a holy people and God's making us holy inside and out through our gatherings. And it's an ascent upward. It's upward all the way. And here's the thing about ascending. It doesn't require any effort. It doesn't acquire any effort, require any effort to ascend. Smoke, it's the nature of smoke to ascend. C.S. Lewis said, The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time, to be good. We become miserable when we try to have it both ways. But if we surrender to the flame of the Spirit, and we ascend as smoke, if we offer our flesh, if we crucify our flesh, we will be free to ascend and to walk with God, whose face shines upon us. Amen? Amen.